Lord, we pray again that You would open the Word to our understanding, that by the ministry of Your Spirit we would be convicted, encouraged, informed, challenged. I pray in behalf of those who know not Christ, that You draw them to Yourself through the text that we read, though it may not be directly addressed to that issue. I pray that the life of prayer that we enjoy in Christ would be seen as a sweet privilege. And I ask that you would encourage and challenge us through this time together. We appeal to you for your help and your aid, knowing that we need it, and asking that you would supply what you alone can supply. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Folklore has given us the image of an ancient Middle Eastern lamp that's inhabited by a genie. Rub the lamp, say the magic words, and the wispy, turban-headed spirit emerges from the spout. And in the happy stories, the ones where you don't let the genie out of the bottle in a bad way, you get what? Three wishes. Your three wishes is my command. Am I the only one who has spent time dreaming about such an opportunity? I'll admit that more than a few times in my history of daydreaming, I've played out and entertained that scenario. What would I ask for? What would I get? What would I seek to restore? Or what would I achieve? It's it's all just a bit of fun, isn't it? Until we turn it into something a little more serious. And when we do, if we're thinking clearly, we thank God it's just a fantasy. We thank God that we'll never have to face such an opportunity because we would have no idea what sorrows or disasters our granted wishes might set into motion. The danger of this fantasy is, and I I think it's just some good fun, But if we think about it seriously again, the danger of this fantasy is that it puts us in the place of God, sovereignly choosing to change the world to our liking and according to our wisdom. Brothers and sisters, we have no idea how to run a universe. But moving from fantasy to reality we do have access to some much greater power, and that is prayer. God alone has the power to steer the course of history. And God alone has the wisdom to do so for His glory and for our ultimate good. And this same God who secures us from wishing catastrophe on ourselves and others invites us to labor with Him for His glorious purposes in prayer. So we get no wispy genie. We get no paltry three wishes. Nor are we restricted by our own wisdom and ingenuity. We are invited by the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth to enter into his throne room. And there on the merits of the crucified risen Savior to ask whatever we will. And we do so with the full confidence that He will protect us from ourselves. That He will protect us and our incapacities to see what is our best 
to see our failure, to see what our all-knowing, all-powerful God knows is best. But within then the parameters of that cosmic safeguard, we are granted the freedom to collaborate with the God of the universe, to affect through prayer what is not yet, but what for God's glory one day will be. To go before the God of the universe and His throne to effect through prayer what is not yet, but what for God's glory one day will be. We bring to close this morning a series of sermons on the life of Elijah, and I'm kind of bummed, honestly. This has just been so rich and encouraging and convicting. We trace the history of Elijah's life as preserved for us in the Old Testament. We looked at that prophecy at the end of the Old Testament of Malachi that Elijah would return. There's a number of references in the New Testament to Elijah. We're not going to review all of those, but I, I think it might be helpful for us just as we bring the series to close to just consider the categories of New Testament references to Elijah. There's those references to John the Baptist who came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah according to Luke chapter 1 and verse 17, fulfilling that prophecy on some level, if not entirely. Secondly, references to Jesus whom some people mistook for Elijah returned to earth. Remember the Israelites were expecting the return of Elijah. And so when they asked the question, when Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? Some said, you're John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead. And others said, you're Elijah that has come back. So we see numerous references to this in the Synoptic Gospels. And then all the Synoptic Gospels record the historical account of Christ's transfiguration and Elijah coming there to speak with Moses and Jesus on that mount. The fourth category is people at the cross who mistook Christ's cry of dereliction as a call for Elijah to save him. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He's calling for Elijah. It's not what he was doing, but we see that recorded as well, those references to Elijah. And then finally, there are some illustrations that are drawn from Elijah's life. That is, the biblical author is making a point and uses the life of Elijah as an illustration. Jesus, for instance, rebukes Israel and hints at the coming Gentile mission by recalling that God sent Elijah to the widow at Zarephath, a Gentile. It's a rebuke to Israel. It's a rebuke from her Old Testament scriptures, and also, again, subtly pointing to the future Gentile mission. A second example is Romans 11, 1-6, where Paul asserts that God always has a remnant of true believers in Israel. And so he recalls there God's instruction to Elijah at Horeb and that there were 7,000 who had not bent the knee to Baal. Jesus using that example from the life of Elijah. And then today, we want to narrow in on another use of Elijah as an illustration and that is found in the book of James. So if we make your way there to the book of James in chapter 5, there's an appeal here to 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, to illustrate the power of prayer as James calls the church to live together as a household of prayer. We've considered this passage several times through the years, and most recently, I think in 2015 or so, we did a series through, a shared series through the book of James. But narrowing down here on this illustration, that's pretty much the only way we've ever covered it, is it was just an illustration 
But we're going we're gonna to narrow in to this passage here today. So making our way to James chapter 5, let me trace out the context just briefly. And that really can be started here just in verse 13. So verses 13 to 20, just looking at that larger context, there is a call here to the church to become a household of believing prayer in a community of mutual care. A household of prayer in a community of mutual care. In quick succession, James sounds this theme from several angles. Notice that there in verse 13, is anyone suffering? Pray. Is anyone cheerful? Sing prayers, in a sense. Sing praises to God, verse 13. In verses 14 through 18, is anyone sick? Invite the elders of the church to pray over you for healing and forgiveness of sins. Is anyone wandering in sin? Rescue that wayward soul, verses 19 through 20. So James strengthens this call to prayer for the sick in verses 14 to 15 by appealing to 1 Kings chapter 17 through 18 and the power of prayer displayed in Elijah's ministry. I trust that's making sense here, but what now at this point, one thing really misses us. And something misses both us and the original readers. What misses us is the pre-modern world's medicinal disadvantages, if we could put it that way. One of our elderly saints in a Bible study who's now with the Lord, she described her life on the farm during the Great Depression. She said, we had no money to go get medicine." We had no money to go to the doctor. We prayed when we got sick. Hard to imagine that world, isn't it, for us? We prayed. This is all we could do was to pray. That's a lot closer to the world that they were in. Everybody has certain remedies for sicknesses through all ages. But in that day, we would be shocked by how many people died over just simple illnesses. This is a world that doesn't have the medical opportunities that we have. The recipients of this epistle lived in a world where sickness snuffed out lives in a way that would shock us. We have a hard time imagining that world, and so it's important for us to see it as he calls here for prayer for the sick. But then there's one thing that misses both of us, both the original recipients and us, and that is the power of prayer. This is the point that James seeks to drive home as he completes this epistle. In doing so, James insists that the local church is a household of believing prayer in a community of mutual care. He then supports this point by appealing to the example of Elijah there in verse 16. And this is the illustration from which James now draws, as he stresses uh, this vital point of the church becoming a household of prayer. So we see the thesis statement comes here in verse 16. This is his overarching point through this, this emphasis here in 13 through 20, verse 16. At the end of the verse, we see this statement, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
The illustration now, verse 17 and 18, is Elijah, a man with a nature like ours who prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months and it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So let's start with this thesis statement, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is drawn from the life of Elijah to illustrate and to stress this point. Let's start with the righteous person. This is not a sinless person. This is not some super saint. This is not some individual who shares Elijah's ministry pedigree or the like. We need to take this, first of all, contextually. Verse 14, there's the elders of the assembly who are praying. In verse 16, notice the two references to one another. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. And then in verse 19, a reference to someone. If, or anyone, if anyone among you wanders. So contextually there, the righteous person is any church member who faithfully strives to see the church fulfill its calling. That's all he's talking about in this section. Therefore, he's not talking about some special super saint. The righteous person is a godly person who prays to the Lord. Theologically speaking, we could support this by saying that a righteous person is never one who boasts superior self-righteousness. Only one who is clothed in Christ's righteousness. And so the righteous person, again, is just one who knows the Lord. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. What does this mean? Well, it's, it's a phrase that's uh, generated all kinds of discussion. And we can see the, the problem with the phrase in the English translations. The NIV, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Or the KJV, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The New American, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Or the Christian Standard Bible, the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. There's different ways of putting it. And uh, hang with me here for just a moment. For the nerds among us, here it is. Uh, it's, it's, you can see somewhat of a problematic statement. I mean, how do you say this? Much, it is powerful, a prayer of a righteous one working, if you take it actively, or being made effective if you take it passively. So for several reasons, and I'll not belabor the point any further here, but I take being effective, or the ESV, as it is working, as a passive rather than an active participle. The Greek word could be taken either way. They're both fair, and the translations bring this out. But taken actively, the prayers of a righteous man are powerfully effective, is the idea. Taken passively, the prayers of a righteous man display much power when they are made effective, and that's by God. So if we take it actively, then prayer is presented as mighty in what it is able to accomplish. And I don't think any would argue that that's true. But if we take it passively, then prayer is mighty in what God enables it to accomplish. And I think that fits the context a bit better as we go back to verse 14. Or in verse 14, we, or 15 rather, I'm sorry, there we read of the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith is not prayer based on my believing hard enough, 
But the prayer of faith is any prayer that depends on the gift of faith that matches God's sovereign choice to heal a person. Prayer is collaboration with God. We pray according to His will, and He answers that prayer. He gives the gift of faith as we pray for a sick person, and they are healed. And so I think here as well that what is in view is the prayer that is mighty as God enables that prayer. Now let me take just a quick sideline and warn us here against the views of some Pentecostal and charismatic churches who claim there is unique power in the spoken word. That the spoken word itself is where the power lies. This is false teaching. The power of prayer is not located in the power of human words. It's not a name it and claim it thing. We have power with our words as we speak them. The power of prayer is not located there. The power of prayer is located in the sovereign purposes of God alone. It is in His purposes that prayer has any power at all. It is in His reign where our prayers are found to be effectual according to His will. So think of it this way. The faithful prayers of God's people are like arrows that God puts in His quiver. God sovereignly selects an arrow, a prayer arrow, and He sets it on the bowstring and He launches it at the target of His divine will. And when He does, our prayers powerfully pierce the target of His purposes. We pray the arrow, He shoots that arrow at His purpose. And that arrow hits the target with effect. By themselves, our prayers are just arrows. They're lifeless, inert, and of no concern to the enemy. But when God fires those prayer arrows toward the target of His divine purposes, those prayers are powerful in their effect. God fires the arrow. So while the phrase is a little difficult to nail down with specificity, the big picture is quite clear, and that's illustrated, I think, here by these translations. We get the basic idea of what is taking place here. There is power in prayer as God uses prayers to accomplish His purposes. Prayer changes things, as the saying goes. It gets things done. And James reminds us that praying in community as a faithful church is no futile endeavor. Or we do not pray to impotent gods. We do not pray to no effect. Our prayers as an assembly tap the power of God in accomplishing the noble ends that He desires working with those prayers for eternal purposes. So, thinking of it contextually again, as elders gather over the severely ill, as sinners confess sin to one another and pray for one another in that conversation, as members seek to help one another persevere in the faith, God sets those arrows on the bowstring of His divine purposes and He fires them with powerful effect at the target of His sanctifying purposes. This is His design, this is His desire, and this is His calling to us. 
Now, Elijah illustrates this point so beautifully. We see the illustration of his life on two lines. First of all, Elijah was a man like us, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, James says. A genuine believer in Christ cannot help but be awed by Elijah's ministry. Imagine praying to God and he launches that specific prayer arrow at the target of three and a half years of drought. Your prayer is seen as so effective even by those in rebellion against God. They want you dead. Like they've come to believe Elijah's prayers actually are keeping the drought going. And, they, and Ahab wants to kill him. And imagine praying again, laboring in prayer on Mount Carmel, seven seasons of intense, fervent prayer. It's not rained for three and a half years. I mean, everybody's convinced the, the world just forgot how to rain. And there he is on the mountain praying fervently, and God darkens the sky. And that prayer arrow pierces that sky and rain falls in torrents on the dry earth. You can't help but stand back and go, that's amazing. That's one amazing guy. What an amazing prayer story. But James says this to us as we consider Elijah's life. At issue, please understand, is not Elijah's great faith in God but his faith in a great God. That's what's at issue. Don't fixate on Elijah as a spiritual superhero. He was not that. In fact, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. We could think of that for some time, but just three thoughts. Elijah was born with a sinful nature. He wasn't semi-angel that somehow skipped the sin nature. He was a sinner at birth. Born in Adam as his head, Elijah was born as susceptible to sin as we are. He sinned, he confessed his sin, he repented of sin. He was not awarded answers to his prayers because he was so good, but because he served the one true and living God. James reminds us of this. Don't get the wrong idea. He was a sinner. Secondly, Elijah was susceptible to doubt and to disbelief. Do you sometimes doubt that prayer makes any difference whatsoever? So did Elijah. He's a man like us. He had a nature like ours. Our nature is beset in our sinfulness by doubt. Do you grow discouraged when it seems that every important prayer that you offer to the Lord goes unanswered? Elijah was no different than you. We see some of that angst in his life, don't we, as we get into chapter 19 and following. It's not working, Lord. Israel's not turning. We were on the precipice of a revival and it all went away in one night. Because of Jezebel. There's a great discouragement that besets us as we doubt and disbelieve the Lord. And we doubt the power of prayer. Elijah, thirdly, could not know or control the future. He was a man like us. He wasn't someone who had some unique power to change things that we don't have. No, set all of that aside, James says. God answers Elijah's prayer 
to withhold rain. And he does so with a man who is with a nature such as ours. Elijah was a man like us, and Elijah secondly prayed to a God like ours. That is our God. He, was, he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Elijah appealed to God to accomplish what God alone could. And God himself instructed Elijah to pray for drought as a disciplinary measure against Israel. So as Elijah prayed, he petitioned God to do what God had revealed would glorify his name and what would be good for Israel ultimately in her discipline. So God took Elijah's prayer, fired it, and struck the target of horrific drought with a powerful blow in answer to Elijah's prayer. And God answers Elijah's prayer to send rain as well in verse 18. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. What do we see on Mount Carmel? What was the picture that we see again as we're reminded from 1 Kings 17 and 18? We see Elijah on his knees with his face to the ground in a, in a, a, a ball of intensity and fervency as he prays to God to release the heavens of rain. And God himself instructing Elijah answers that prayer, but Elijah perseveres. Seven seasons. Go back, he says to his servants. See what you see. What's coming off the sea? Is rain coming? Seven times he goes back to God. And he, a man of doubt... And disbelief, a man who does not know the future, a man who does not have the capacity to make it rain, keeps praying. With fervency, with perseverance, he comes back seven times and keeps praying. Then God took that prayer arrow and he pierced the heavens and the rains fell. Now says James, I write to you as a local church, believers in Christ, people gathered together in His name. Elijah was a man of similar nature. The same nature as ours. But he prayed. And look what God did. I call you then, not to pray that drought comes to discipline America, but what does he call us to pray? He pray over the sick. Those who are suffering, to pray in their suffering. You as a congregation to pick up these prayers. We see then, that he's, he drives at the implications here, though it's not specifically stated, we draw it out of the context itself uh, in verse 13. You're suffering, you pray, you're sick, there is to be prayer in the context of the assembly. In verse 14, letting the elders pray. In verse 16, praying for one another. Verses 17 and 18, the reference is here to Elijah's two prayers. It's just saturated with prayer. We're to become a household of prayer. Encouraged in these verses to participate as the body of Christ in the sovereign activity of God on earth, pleading that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we are exhorted to offer earnest prayers as an assembly, prayers that by faith support divine purposes. 
Elijah wasn't just some miracle worker. He wasn't floating out there on his own. He was praying in sync with what God wanted to do to rebuke and to ultimately restore Israel to the faith. And so our goal as we think by way of application is to become a people who prays together in the interest of God's kingdom. We can separate out a few of these ideas and say that's speaking a personalized prayer, but understood contextually as well as connecting to the places here where it cannot be taken as just individual private prayer. The call here is for us as a church to become a people that prays in the interest of the kingdom of God. This privilege of prayer is no mere three wishes to get anything that we want. This privilege of prayer is the authority to talk to God and to work together with Him as we labor for His will. We're privileged to pray in defiance of what is and to pray in the interest of what we know will glorify our Lord and Savior. Here's the world that is as we suffer, as we face disease, as we confess our sins to one another, as there is, in verse 19, those who wander from the truth. This is our world. This is where we're at. This is what is broken and wrong. But we can come together as the people of God in prayer before the throne of the universe and say to God, hear our prayer. Here's the arrow. We place it in your quiver. And we pray that you'll use it for the glory of your name. And many of those prayers God will not touch in the sense of using them because we don't understand what we're praying. And we don't understand the disaster that would come if he were not orchestrating, watching over, and caring for us. And so he mercifully leaves some of those arrows in his quiver. And there's other arrows that are there for a very, very long time. And we just add all kinds of others to them, the same prayer, the same prayer, again and again and again. But He's called us to do this. Not in vain repetition, but in persistence of desire, laboring with Him as He affects the changes for His glory in this world. Sometimes He leaves the arrows there for a very, very long time. And we've heard in the lives of some saints that he's picked up those arrows and fired them with great effect after the person who offered the prayer is long gone. We aren't God. What we want in playing God is to have a lamp in our hands that demands you will do what I want, three wishes, just as I name them on my timetable. Thank God we serve a God who's way bigger than that. He's no misty, turban-headed genie. He is the God of the universe. And He answers prayer. So Elijah's example in prayer is used in this way to illustrate the truth that we are designed by Christ to encourage one another in prayers as an assembly of mutual care. 
a household of believing prayer in a community of mutual care. As Christ's body, we're called to form a community of faith where people are healed, where they are forgiven, where they are restored, where they are edified through prayer. Praying together, we collaborate with the power of God to save and to sanctify. And again, it's far more than just wishes that we can marshal to get what we want in the moment. There's something far deeper, but think of that scenario in light of John chapter 15 and verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We see in the second half of that, ask whatever you desire. Come to my throne and pour out prayers of petition along with other types of prayers. But pour them out asking what you wish. But we have a God that loves us enough to put the first half of the verse there. Abide in me. That is, walk with me. Live in the presence of the Lord. And have His words abiding in you. When we know what God wants, when we hear His word, then we begin to formulate the kind of prayer arrows that He chooses to pull and to send flying toward the purposes of His will. It's a universal invitation, but it is graciously hemmed in by the Father's holy and gracious purposes so that we will not, in our folly, pray into being what should never be, admitting that we really don't ultimately know. But this call to prayer, brothers and sisters, is an awesome privilege that wields unimaginable power. And that's what James wants us to know. Not my words, but God's purposes. And our problem is, human in nature, that we really struggle to believe it. When our Savior says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, what other answer is there for the lack of prayer? For the few times that we gather together and ask Him to contend for the glory of His name in this earth, what other reason is there but disbelief? But let us take heart. Let us take heart that we pray to the same God that Elijah prayed to. He is a sovereign God who pulls out the arrows of our prayers, fires them at His purposes with perfect effect. This is what He has revealed to us. This isn't fantasy. This is what the sovereign reigning Christ is doing as His people seek Him in prayer. And so, believer, what keeps us from joining God's mission in prayer? What keeps you from it? May He challenge us here today. May He use us and draw us together that we would be a church that prays. That we would be a church that in our gatherings together, we are laboring and contending for the glory of Christ's name throughout all the earth. If you've gathered with us today and you are not united to Christ and faith 
You've not come to embrace Christ as Lord and reigning Savior. You've not come to a place in your life where you know that He has saved you from your sin. Let me just warn you, you cannot waltz into God's throne room. I don't mean to frighten you from prayers, and I I think praying, go for it. But you can't just waltz into His throne room. You must meet the protocols. And it's really important that you know that as you're praying, there are protocols to meet. And those protocols are not your good works and not your intense faith, not how you fervently pray. The only protocol is to know the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can walk you into the throne room. He alone has that authority. And if you know Him and you go in His presence, you're invited in. But that comes on the other side, ultimately, of coming to a place of repentance for your sin and belief that Christ has died to provide the forgiveness of sin and has proven that in His resurrection power. In prayer, then, you come to Him as Lord and Savior and say, I have nothing in my hands to bring but to your saving grace. I cling. Then, on the authority of Christ, on the merits of Christ, we enter into His presence and we become, then, like never before, a praying person. We, as a gathering here, a praying people. May God bring it about. May He continue to deepen us in that as a church. Let's pray together. Father, we turn now to you again in prayer and we're thankful for the prayers that have been lifted in this gathering, in this assembly today. We come to you in prayer and we plead with you that you would indeed bring healing to those who are facing illness and sickness and disease. We pray, Father, that in your mercy that you would restore to health those who so struggle. We pray, Father, for those who are suffering other types of trials, including the trial of health. But we pray, Father, for those who face other areas of suffering, for those that find that suffering in their work, that find that suffering in their families, that find that suffering as we've sung today from John Newton's hymn, deep down in their own soul, a wickedness a corruption, a weakness that is so discouraging. Lord, I pray for those who wander and for the prayers that are offered. We offer prayers now for those who wander to bring them back to the right path, to keep them from sin and harm. We pray together as an assembly that You would rescue for Your name sinners who are destined for an eternity in hell and separation from You. We pray that You would turn many to Christ as Savior, that You would use our prayers and our words of witness to bring people to the Lord. We pray, Father, for those who wander, for those who struggle, for those in need. And we ask, Lord, that as a community of faith, You will hear the prayer arrows that we hand to You now and that you 
by your sovereign grace, would let them fly to accomplish great things. Teach us not only to be a church that supports the cause with our finances. Teach us to be a church that not only ministers to one another the word, but teach us to be a church that labors for the glory of your name throughout this world, in this time, on earth as it is in heaven. Teach us to labor in prayer together. Show us how to take steps forward and to accomplish the good work that you desire as we work with you through our prayers. And meet us here, we pray, meeting those specifically who know not Christ as Savior and drawing them to the light, showing them the privilege of prayer. Prayer to a God with whom we are reconciled through the death of Christ. We lay these requests at your feet and ask that you would hear our cry for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. May we be a household of believing prayer in a community of mutual care. We ask this of you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.